All right, I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, book of 1 Peter chapter 2. As we get to 1 Peter this morning, I want to, I want to begin with a, a question. I don't expect anyone to shout an answer out. I simply want us to reflect on this for a moment together. And the question is this. What is the one thing more than anything else that hinders unbelievers from trusting in Jesus? Just think about that in your own mind. What is the one thing more than anything else that hinders unbelievers from trusting in Jesus? And we could come up with several potential answers uh, maybe it's something philosophical, you know, if God exists, why is there evil in the world, that kind of thing. Uh, maybe it has to do more with identity. For many people in the world, to trust in Jesus would be to turn their back on their family, on their traditions, even on their country. They fear losing their community, their relationships with the people closest to them. And of course, behind all those things is Satan. According to 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. I don't, I don't have an answer. I don't pretend to, to know which of these is actually the most common excuse. But having lived in the so-called Bible Belt my whole life, I will tell you one excuse that I've heard with a frequency that makes me genuinely sad. And uh, the first time I ever really remember realizing how big this was for people was when I was in high school when I had a, a teacher that I loved, but she seemed to have no interest at all in the Lord or in church or anything like that. And I, I tried my best as a 10th grader can to, to try to start up a gospel conversation with her. And she, she says, stop, stop me right there. And she said, Matt, my problem with Christianity is nothing philosophical it's not that I have a hard time understanding anything. It's that people who have called themselves Christians have done awful things to me in my life. Why would I want to follow Jesus when everyone I know who claims to follow him are such hypocrites? And she said, now, I don't lump you in the middle of that, but almost everyone else, that's true. Now, that kind of excuse can be a smokescreen. You know, it can be something that people just say to make themselves feel better. But I was thinking about that this week, and, and what I thought was, wouldn't it be nice if we lived in a world where that kind of excuse didn't make any sense? Wouldn't it be nice if we lived in a world where, where somebody said something like that, and you just thought, what, who, who's ever known a, a, a hypocrite who goes to church or anything like that, right? The truth of the matter is, there are many people who call themselves Christians who are hypocritical, vulgar, hateful, selfish, prideful, quarrelsome, racist, unmerciful, fill in the blank. And so it ought to make us incredibly resolved when we realize how important our conduct is to whether people want to hear the message we have. We don't have to be perfect before we can be a good witness, but our conduct is crucial to the mission that God has given to us. And that's what we're going to hear Peter tell us this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2. So let's begin reading together. We're going to begin in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles 
to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would enable us by your Spirit to hear what you have spoken by your Spirit. And Lord, that you would enable us by your Spirit to obey what you have spoken by your Spirit. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, give us hearts and wills that are ready to obey you, not for our sake, but for your sake. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, uh, so one night this week, I'm going to confess something to you. Something happened uh, to me that I'm sure has happened to you. I was in the middle of a conversation with myself, and I tried to add Rebecca to this conversation that I was having in my head. The problem was she was not privy to the you know, minutes-long conversation that I had been having in my head. So when I brought her in, she was lost. She had no idea what I was talking about. Um, I'm sure that's never happened to any of you. Uh, when, we, when we make our way through a book of the Bible, because of the nature of how we do it, we do it like, for example, with First Peter, this is a letter. And most of the time, if you were to get a letter in the mail, you don't you know, pick it up and read a sentence and then sit it down and then the, come back a week later and read another paragraph or something like that. Usually you just kind of read it through. And so you have a sense, right, of the flow uh, of, of, of the argument that's being made or whatever's being told to you. But in this case, we're, we're sort of picking it up, reading a paragraph, sitting it down, coming back a week later and, and doing the same thing. And so there's a danger that we sort of lose track of Peter's God-inspired train of thought, as it were. And we sort of fail to see how what he says in these two verses, for example, have anything to do with what he said before. We may not even remember some of the things he's said before. And so before we kind of plow ahead, uh, it's helpful to retrace some mental steps that Peter has walked us through. And that's what I want to do this morning, is, is sort of see how have we gotten to this point. Because it's going to prove really important for how we understand what he says in, in these two verses. So let's go all the way back to the very first verse of 1 Peter. I want you to look all the way back with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, where Peter says, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And I just want you to have that, I, that phrase, elect exiles, in your mind, specifically the word exiles, of the dispersion, and now hold your place there and look at chapter 211, the verse we began with this morning where he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And when you read the word beloved, that's a word that's easy to just kind of gloss over, right? But think about what he's saying in that word. He's saying you, the people to whom I'm speaking, you are loved, not just by me or not just by one another, but you are loved by the Lord, which is what it means to be elect. So elect exiles, beloved sojourners and exiles, and thankfully for us, this letter does not skip from 
chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 11. Peter does not say, okay, I'm writing to elect exiles, yada, 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 keep your conduct honorable. He, he doesn't yada, yada, yada through all this. He actually organizes his thoughts carefully under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we can trace this train of thought with the Spirit's help. So Peter begins with the character of God. That's his starting point. That's the center. The character of God and the merciful acts of God toward us. So chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who God is. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what He's done. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that's who God is. That's what He has done. And then from God's character, Peter moves on to what does God expect of us? How, how does He expect us to relate to Him as one who is infinitely holy? Look at chapter 1, verse 15. As He who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. So holiness of conduct has to do with how we relate to a perfectly holy God. The reason we are called to be holy is because the one who has called us is holy. And then from that holiness of conduct, Peter moves on to our relation to one another within the church. So he's moving outward, starting with God, then with us and our relation to God, and then our relation to one another within the church. Chapter 1, verse 22 Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So don't just be holy in your heart, but love one another from a pure heart, which means practically, tangibly do things that are kind and loving toward one another. And he gives us an example of what he means in a negative sense. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, "...put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander." Chapter 2, verse 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Colby did a really good job last week of pointing out how that priesthood is not just about us as individuals, but it's about us collectively. When he says you yourselves like living stones are being built up, he's using the plural there, plural there, y'all. Y'all, the church, y'all are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So he's, he's moving outward. I find it helpful to think of these concentric circles where Peter starts at the most fundamental level with God. I, I have to visualize this stuff, so I thought maybe this might be helpful for you. He starts at the most fundamental level with, with God, his character, his acts, who he is, what he has done. God is holy. He's merciful. He has acted toward us in holiness and in mercy. And from that center, we move out to our relationship to God. Because He is holy, He calls us to be holy as well. We are called to mirror the character of the one who has called us. And then from there, we move outward to our relationship to one another within the church. So our, our holiness and our mercy are not hypothetical. They're not just things we do in our mind or in our heart, but they are demonstrated in acts of holiness and mercy toward one another. And now, starting in chapter 2, verse 11, Peter broadens the scope once more to include how we relate to unbelievers, to those who are not part of God's people. He says in chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, we need 
to be really clear about what he means and doesn't mean by that, specifically the word Gentiles. Um, in the Old Testament, there was this division between Israel and the nations. Everyone who was not an ethnic descendant of Abraham, specifically of Isaac and Jacob, everyone outside of that family was considered a Gentile. And that was not only an ethnic or a national description, it was a way of describing someone who was outside the covenant people of God. To be a Gentile meant that you are not part of God's people. Now, as I said at the beginning of our service this morning, the New Testament makes it exceedingly clear that it is those who trust in Christ, no matter their ethnic or national background, who are true spiritual descendants of Abraham by faith. Paul walks us through that where he says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and so it is those who believe who are true spiritual descendants of Abraham. Because while we may not have his blood, we have the same faith that he has. We trust in the same promise that he trusted. And so when Peter refers to Gentiles, when he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, he's speaking figuratively of unbelievers, of, of people who are outside of God's people, who have not trusted in Christ and who have not been born again. So the point is, keep your conduct among unbelievers honorable. That's the gist of what he's saying in verse 12. Keep your conduct among unbelievers honorable. It's not only important that we consider how we relate to God and how we relate to other believers, but also that we consider how we relate to the world, to those who are not among God's people. How do they view who we are and what we do as people who claim the name of Christ? Now... The reason I wanted to walk you through all of that is not because I want you to think, wow, Matt's really clever that he saw that. I'm hardly the first person to notice that flow of thought, okay? You pick up any commentary and they're going to tell you the same thing. There's a practical reason, though, why this is really important. Because we cannot start at that outer circle. We cannot start by asking how do I act honorably before unbelievers? If that's my starting point, then it's going to get me seriously messed up and all the circles on the inside are going to get wonky and confused. If I start by asking, what would unbelievers consider honorable? Rather than, who is God? And what does He consider honorable? If, if I have the wrong starting point, I'm going to fall far short of what God calls me to be and do. And this would be true in any generation, but it seems especially pertinent today. I was thinking this through and, and I thought, you know, it's no secret we live in an incredibly fractured society. Uh, it sometimes feels like different parts of our society are operating with different sets of facts, living in two distinct realities and because of that, there is sometimes very little consensus on what is honorable and what is dishonorable. So depending on which unbelievers you're looking at or talking to, different sets of unbelievers are going to find different and sometimes opposite things honorable. For example, some who claim to follow Christ could go out and they could say, well, we're going to champion things like 
abortion and, and homosexual marriage. That's going gonna, gonna, to be our banner. We're going to wave that banner. And there's a certain segment of our society that would celebrate that and applaud it. Right? They would say, this is religion that is pure and undefiled. On the other hand, some who claim to follow Christ could go out and they could rail against outsiders and they could stoke racial resentment. And there's a certain segment of our society that would say that's honorable. Right, Christianity is about strength. It's about asserting our freedom. And so we've so idolized politics that for many people, including many Christians, the standard by which we determine whether something is honorable or not is whether it upsets the other side. Does it upset liberals or does it upset conservatives or whatever? Even among those who claim to follow Christ, there are sadly many times when little thought is given to what would please God in this situation. What would He deem honorable? And so for the sake of Christ, if we're going to obey the Word of God, we have got to stop getting our talking points from a politician or a political party. We have got to stop getting our talking points from some blowhard on the TV or on the internet or on the radio who gets paid not to tell the truth, but to tell a certain group of people what they want to hear. We have got to stop getting our talking points from some post that we saw on Facebook that we thought was clever. And we have to come back over and over to the Bible because this is where the Lord of heaven and earth has spoken. This is where there is truth without any mixture of error. This is where there is no misinformation. This is where we hear the character of the living God. This is where we hear what He values, what He calls us to be and to do. This is where we hear what He deems honorable. The Bible has to be our center. It has to be the lens through which we filter everything else. And before we speak and before we act, our first thought should be, what will please the Lord? What can I say, what can I do that would honor Him? What would most reflect His character in this situation? And if it won't please Him, it won't honor Him, and it won't reflect His character, then we don't do it. We don't, we don't have to guess about what that might be. We don't have to say, well, this is what I think would please the Lord. We have a whole Bible here that's full of what He says will please Him. So we have to listen to what He has said in His Word. We let the Bible guide our thoughts, guide our words, guide our actions, and even guide our attitudes. And then we have to live honorably so that when unbelievers see our good deeds, they will glorify Him. Peter is writing this letter to people he knows are going to be treated as outcasts. He says in verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers. Not if, but when. These believers, these early Christians, were not going to toe the lines their society had drawn. They were not going to say, Caesar is Lord. They were not going to worship the gods of Rome. And for that reason, they would be treated as unpatriotic atheists because they didn't call Caesar Lord and they didn't worship the gods of Rome. And when something went wrong in society, they would become scapegoats. The reason we lost this battle, the reason we had this drought, the reason we had this famine, whatever, is because the gods are clearly punishing us for tolerating these godless Christians. So why should we allow them to be our neighbor? Why should we allow them to be part of our society. 
they're what's wrong with the world today. That's what was said of first century Christians. That's what these early Christians were up against. What was true then and what is still true today is that there is enough offense in the gospel itself that we don't need to add any other offense to it. It is offensive enough for us to say that there's only one God, that every human being is a sinner, and the only way to be reconciled to this one holy God is by trusting in His only Son. That's offensive enough on its own. It's offensive enough for us to say that God sent His Son into the world to become flesh, to be born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, to die like a criminal, and then God raised Him from the dead. That's offensive enough on its own. That message itself has enough offense. We don't need to add any other stumbling blocks besides the gospel. In fact, we should strive to make it so that our conduct is so honorable that unbelievers would see our good deeds and glorify God. And they would say, you know what? The stuff that those Christians talk about sounds crazy. They, they believe that a, somebody was born of a virgin and that guy lived for a while and then he died and then he came back alive and he's still alive today. That's crazy. But man... Those Christians sure are kind and loving and merciful. And if they're like that, then maybe I'll listen again to what they have to say. So here's how uh, I think a helpful way that we could summarize the big idea here of these two verses. That our conduct is crucial to our mission. Our conduct is crucial to our mission. If we want to be faithful to the Lord and to the mission that He has given us in the world, then we should be awfully concerned with how we live. Now that does not mean that we live so as to please the world. But it also does not mean that we go out of our way to offend the world needlessly. There are some ways that we cannot help but to offend but we're only willing to offend on matters of the gospel, on things that are absolutely central to what the Bible teaches. In other words, let's put it real plain, okay? If unbelievers are going to be turned off by us, let's let them be turned off by the message we believe and the truths we proclaim and not by the words we say about anything other than that, not by our attitudes by our actions, but only by the gospel. It is not accidental that Peter tells us to keep our conduct among unbelievers honorable in the same breath that he tells us in verse 11, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This is a lesson that 13-year-olds have to learn and that 83-year-olds still have to learn. That just because something feels good, just because you want to do it, does not make it right. Now, these sinful desires can take all kinds of shapes, and we could apply verse 11 to a whole lot of things. But let's just glance back at the context that Peter's just been talking about, the very first verse of chapter 2, where Peter said, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. And I'll just put the question to you. Can it feel good to have malice? Can it feel good to have malice towards somebody? You better believe it can. Yeah, it can feel great 
to see somebody that you don't like, to see somebody you think has wronged you, and to say, boy, I sure wish that they would get what's coming to them. That's malice. That's ill will. What about envy? Can it feel good to envy someone? Yes, it can. It can feel good to look at someone and say, they don't deserve what they've got. You know, they've got, a, they've got an easy life, and here I have, I've got all this hardship. I work hard, I pay my taxes, I do all the right things, and they've got it so much better than me. It can feel good to imagine that they don't really deserve what they have and that somehow God's got it wrong when he went distributing things to different people. Slander. Can it feel good to slander someone? Absolutely. Right? It can feel great to just let it rip. Just let them have it. Don't hold back. Just destroy them. Tear them down with your words. All of these things can feel pleasant. And just because a person is born again does not mean those sinful desires magically disappear. Right? We need to rid ourselves of the notion that God is just going to take away all of our sinful cravings. Peter's writing this letter to people who have... He's just said, you've been born again according to the great mercy of God. And now he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You are at war. But your war is not with flesh and blood. It's not with people out there. It's happening in your own heart, in your own mind, in your own body, in your own soul. The desires of our sin nature are waging war against our souls. So starve them, abstain from them, put them to death. Why? Because we want God to be glorified. Because we want our conduct to be so honorable that when other unbelievers speak against us as evildoers, that they'll actually see our good deeds and they will glorify our God on the day of visitation. We don't want to do anything that's going to cause His name to be run through the mud. Our conduct is crucial to our mission. Our world is in tremendous chaos. Uh, now, as much as ever, the redeemed of the Lord need to act like we've been redeemed. We need to act as those who have received mercy. We need to act as those who are not living for ourselves, but for the one who saved us. We must, in the words of Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We must repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. We must not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for how you've spoken in your word. And I pray as we respond this morning that you would help us to respond rightly. Lord, that we would not harden our hearts, that we would not think ourselves above what you have said. Lord, we would lower ourselves and submit ourselves to what you have spoken in your word. God, that you would show each one of us how we have sinned and that our desire would be to turn from that sin and to follow you all the more. Lord, there may be someone hearing my voice right now at this very moment who has not yet put their trust in you, Lord Jesus. They have not yet been born again, and yet by your Spirit you are calling them and inviting them to put their faith in you.
and to follow you and surrender to you. And so, Spirit of God, I pray that you would move, work in the word that has been spoken today. Bless it and cause it to bear fruit. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.